let me tell you one thing. Neither mm-hmm. the good times or the bad times will last for a long time. In right. the startup world, like you face ups and downs almost on a daily basis, right? Welcome back, everyone, to the Mind Gravity Podcast. Now, before we kick off today's episode, I want to bring something more interesting to your attention. I'm an avid supporter of finding ways to enhance the quality of life for people. And for me, mental and financial health sits right at the top. So to spread more awareness around the subject, I have launched a newsletter that brings interesting ideas and articles around the globe on how to take care of our mind and new thoughts for a better financial life. You can check it out on mindgravity2020.substack.com. I hope you like the articles being shared. And if you do, don't forget to share it with everyone you know in your network. Now, since that's out of the way, let's get back to the podcast. Our guest today is connecting with us from Bangalore, the Silicon Valley of India. Vijay Nadadur is the founder and CEO of the startup Stride.ai which is an AI-driven digital transformation and process automation company focused on financial services. And I know that's a ton of jargon and VJ will do a great job bringing it to the layman's level. Well, you will hear all about it on our today's show. What I found even more interesting in this conversation today is his candid and honest view about what building your own startup is all about and what it feels like. In his words, it's a daily roller coaster of highs and lows. So I can't wait to introduce you all to Vijay. Let's go. Welcome to the Mind Gravity Podcast, Vijay. Uh, thank you so much for having me here, Rohan. I really appreciate that. You know, uh, you have an amazing startup, Stride.ai, but before we dive deep into what the startup is and what are some of the challenges associated with it, why not dig a bit deeper into your background and give an introduction for our listeners too? Oh, thank you for asking that question because, um, you know, nowadays, right, like you have two kinds of founders, right, who uh, have a brilliant idea right out of college or like, you know, those who have worked for 15 years on solving a particular problem. Uh, unfortunately, I don't belong to either of those categories. Oh, really? So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> my background was, uh, so I um, uh, graduated with an undergraduate degree in uh, computer science from India. And then I moved to the U.S. Uh, after working here for a couple of years. I uh, moved to the U.S. to get my uh, Ph.D. in computer science. Uh, I spent about two and a half years uh, pursuing my Ph.D., uh, truncated it to a master's, and then moved to another university to get my second master's in uh, focusing mainly on AI and bioinformatics. And I was kind of like more into research and I even taught a semester um, when my professor uh, uh, was encouraging me to kind of explore more of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So what I had applied for my master's uh, thesis um, came in pretty handy and I was also interested in languages. So um, the current form of the company, the roots lie in um, uh, my inquisitiveness or my trying to experiment uh, applying my thesis concept on um, uh, languages as such and uh, it just so happened a few days later people were all excited or they're like oh there's so much application to this and that's when I, uh, I told myself you know it's not a bad idea to go ahead and get started on my own right. um, got pretty lucky maybe perhaps I was in the right place at the right time and six years later, here we are. <laughs> that, that, that's brilliant. You know, so that's interesting that you completed your undergrad studies in India, then moved to the US and pursued a PhD. And you hear a lot of young entrepreneurs coming from India, China, and other emerging parts of the world. So what was those initial challenges that you faced, whether that was cultural or just understanding from the academic point of view? Was, what was the biggest difference that you found either for good or for uh, for for worse, uh, that that education system uh, that you have in U.S. versus India, how did you feel? Uh, you're right. I mean, uh, I think that's uh, a very common case with most people uh, from uh, international background coming to the U.S. So I think the U.S. education system um, uh, is vastly different from that the one that we have in India. Uh, like, if you take a few parameters, right? 
One, there is more importance to memory in the education system here in India, but then in the US, um, the education system doesn't require you to memorize a lot of things. It's not fact-based, it's your ability to deduce, ability to think. Um, that's actually, uh, though, that's how it's supposed to be and more practical, but people like myself, we were not used to that kind of learning. So that certainly was one part of the challenge. The other part of the challenge, right? Um, people always accumulate stuff and are able to manage uh, by studying extra hours during the last few weeks of your finals. And because your most of your grade is dependent on the finals. But when you take the US education system, it's like a consistent test, your midterms, like your assignments, all of them account for it towards your finals. So it's more on the consistency basis uh, rather than your ability to do well in one exam. So even that was one of the challenges I had to uh, like overcome. And lastly, I would say is that, um, you know, the, the education system is not like uh, a one-way traffic as it often happens in many parts of the world where uh, you're just like uh, taking down the notes and going by that as a gospel of truth, as right. opposed to actually having a discussion with your professor and sometimes even challenging. And I, when I saw students challenging professors, I was uh, really not comfortable in the beginning. <laughs> that was like very weird for me, but like then I realized this is how it works. Yeah. And, and yeah, it, over a period of time, maybe uh, two semesters into the system, you pretty much get used to it. And once you start getting used to it, you realize the other systems weren't as effective as this was. Right. So I'm from what I understand or what I'm hearing as well is, so the environment that gets created in the education system, say in the US, which is very entrepreneurial. You're, you're, you're challenged to speak up, you're challenged to um, you know, speak your mind and things that you're thinking about. So does that help kind of in your startup journey that makes you more confident or what is it? I think uh, I can cite two specific examples, right? Mm -hmm. The one is um, whatever you work on, you go and present on the stage, right? Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> there's no like golden rules laid down that this is how you present, this is how you talk. It's like how an individual chooses to present his or her work. I think one of the key essences of entrepreneurship is your ability to go out there and present your ideas to the world. Right. In my uh, particular case, uh, I was able to realize that uh, this uh, practice of presenting my work has been extremely valuable, right? In a simple, clear, and concise manner. The second uh, particular example, which uh, prepares students for their entrepreneurial journey, though uh, it's a technical course, is that your ability to work on problems and come out with a unique solution rather than like going and understanding what is there in a paper or what is there in your textbooks. So what happens is you always can look at a problem and go out there and confidently say, you know what, I can create something better. These are my hypotheses. I'm gonna prove the hypothesis. And if it works, I have nothing can stop me. And, and uh, I'm speaking this from my personal experience. This is exactly how it happened. So you had a, I had a hypothesis in my mind, was able to test it, go out, take it out to the market. And when the people asked me, how are you better? So initially, though I don't believe this is the most important part to be an entrepreneur, that you are 20% better or 15% better, but your ability to go out and say that with confidence and certainty, mm -hmm. it really helps you get started on your journey. Right. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And I think the education system sets you up for that kind of success. Because when you're talking about thesis or hypothesis based mm -hmm. testing, if you look at a startup journey, it's nothing more than a bunch of different experiments that you're conducting, right? So you are able to structure that and that learning comes from this education system you just described. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, startups, I mean, uh, when you start on an idea, right, it's nothing but an idea, right? You mm -hmm. start with something, you start believing that you could do it better or faster or cheaper and then you go out there and get started and and uh, you know uh, a few failures a few learnings here and there and there you have your startup right you never right. know how quickly you transition there yeah absolutely so you get that moment of spark and you're like aha okay i need to go after this um that is but right 
But EJ, so before you started Stride.ai, and that's your uh, name of the adventure, um, you said uh, you, you were on a project and that kind of transpired into the venture that you're currently working on. Was that always the journey you thought of or that I want to have my own company or did you have a different, completely different route in mind <clears throat> as, as, besides from being a doctor in, of science? <laughs> <laughs> well, it wouldn't be very unfair to characterize my, myself as uh, an accidental entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I, I was never uh, thinking about being an entrepreneur or at least in the immediate future to be an entrepreneur while I was at school. Uh, my uh, ideal journey would have been like, okay, uh, if the PhD route would have worked, <laughs> go and teach in a, at a university right. and then see how things would work out. Or uh, after I took uh, my master's route, the whole idea was to work in the corporation for a few years and Mm -hmm. then see uh, with my experience and probably some savings how I could kind of transition into an entrepreneur. But that was like a 10-year plan. Mm -hmm. So um, what transpired these things was like, I I had friends like who is my co-founder right now. He was very encouraging that uh, this idea is really cool. You should test it out. I mean, there's no downside, right? If you fail one year later, you could do what you're doing right now. Right. So that giving myself that one year's time and experimenting, uh, it just happened that I uh, started learning more about how entrepreneurship works. I started uh, applying the, the classic methods of reading a bunch of books, talking to a bunch of people who have done it before mm-hmm. um, and tried to kind of, you know, uh, repeat that uh, known or tested path, which was uh, documented right. may not be the greatest idea but uh, right. it, it did get help me get started that way <laughs> yep i think starting by emulation is is one of the best advices here one can get right uh if you, if you don't know something new or you're just struggling to start somewhere just go and ask people who have already done that before and that's brilliant um True. so now we, we've been teasing out a bit about your startup and your journey so far um so why don't you tell us a bit more about what stride.ai is and uh, what you've been working on? Okay, so let me go ahead and give my 30-second pitch about what the company <laughs> Let's <does>. do that. <laughs> Every entrepreneur does that for a living. So here's a 30-second pitch. Uh, at stride.ai, we work with large uh, banks and financial institutions and even other organizations to enhance their operational productivity. What I mean by that is uh, there's something called as knowledge work, which requires you to understand, interpret. Uh, I mean, and this knowledge work requires a considerable amount of time and human effort. And we offer a platform which enables uh, organizations to automate uh, or at least augment uh, what I call as uh, human capital with uh, AI in order to be more productive. So let me give you a quick example. Now, if you are reading a report which is 100 pages long and trying to come out with a concise set of points, um, you would take a few hours or maybe a day or two. Uh, If you use automation, you could do that in a matter of half an hour or a few minutes. Uh, And we've seen, right, when you um, tap into areas where this is a repeated process, uh, we are able to save uh, organizations a considerable amount of time and money. So gotcha. that's what we do. So you're increasing the operational efficiency for these large corporations or even small corporations that are consuming a large amount of information in terms of documents and dockets and uh, regulations and policies and so forth and making sure- You're, you're spot on, right? right? And, okay. and yeah, the information could be spread out uh, on the web or, uh, or in forms of multiple documents and multiple languages. That's right. exactly what we do, you're right. So now technology obviously plays a great deal in it, right? And we obviously um, hold AI, machine learning and natural language processing as kind of these totem poles holding it all together and trying to read through as much text and data as possible. So given your understanding of this space, how far we have come as far as these technologies being actually automating and being concise enough that we've may not need a human to interpret a lot of this data. Are we still far from there? (laughs) So I want to start uh, answering this question by a quote from one of our customers. Hmm. So when I asked her that, what do you think of AI? 
So uh, she had a technical background herself. Mm-hmm. So she gave me this answer and I cannot agree more with her <laughs> because it is like spot on. So she told me that AI to me was like um, something exciting when you present, uh, something moderate when you do a proof of concept mm-hmm. and something that seldom makes into, into production systems, right? <laughs> so, uh, and then I was like, okay, so you don't think AI is creating impact. She's like, it is creating news and not sure if it's actually creating impact. Uh, but of course, right, this is a couple of years ago. Right. And from there, I think uh, we've come a long distance, according to me at least, is we've seen uh, stuff go into production and actually mm-hmm. deliver value. But uh, one of the things that I, I don't necessarily agree is that the out far-reaching impact, which is normally uh, the central focus in the media, that uh, AI can replace humans, it can automate 100% and like, do more than what humans could. Right. I think that's a little bit of exaggeration there. Um, yeah, AI can actually, right now where we stand is AI can augment effectively mm-hmm. and uh, save you time and money. But ultimately, the human in the loop is the one deciding for you. So instead of having 10 humans, you could, in theory, have three. But that, right. that's, again, a, a lot of efficiency gain. But it's not like uh, scary to a point wherein, like, you know, the AI is deciding for itself and there's no need for humans out there. I think we're at least a couple of decades away from that scenario. Right, right, right. So what you're saying is it's more about intelligence augmentation, less of just a human brain mind replication. Uh, at least to the best of my knowledge and right. at least uh, where I've seen in, uh, you know, you're talking about something in production, not in a prototype state, right? Yeah. So definitely I would stand with that. Gotcha. Makes sense. I think, okay, that's, that's good. We have that out of the way. So it's still in the intelligent augmentation phase and we are far away from actual, um, we'll have a complete, uh, you know, super intelligence come to power, if you will. Um, so, you know, from, from, from a product perspective, but you were thinking about developing a use case. So I think use case becomes very critical, especially in early stages of your startup's life. How did you go about identifying what industry or what use case might fit best for the technology tool set that you have created? And was there an experience that you've had that you thought uh, this could be a great spot to start? What was the genesis there? So, um, uh, yeah. So what happened is like, uh, though it wouldn't be the extreme case of coming out with a solution first and then Mm -hmm. looking out for a problem, Right. Uh, that's an extreme case, and I've seen some startups succeed that way also. But like, we had some advantage that we had uh, the underlying technology developed and not the solution level part. Solution level part, um, two things happened. One, we did experiment with the customer experience management and uh, uh, the call center uh, ticketing systems as a first use case. Uh, what um, I saw was there was a lukewarm response. So mm-hmm. if you're an entrepreneur listening to this out there, I want to tell you one thing. Uh, a, a good response is obviously like, yes, I want this. An okay response is, uh-huh, I don't want this. One step. Right. But the worst response for you as an entrepreneur is, this is interesting, let's explore. And <laughs> no one knows where this is going. You spend a lot of time, money, energy, hope, and resources to realize it leads to disappointment. And that's exactly how we decided this is not the area we want to be in. Mm -hmm. And also, there were some large established players. So obviously, we backtracked. Uh, I had experimented uh, on on a personal basis with data from banks and financial institutions. So that experience came in handy when a large French bank opened up uh, an innovation challenge and they actually accepted us into the program. Uh, Their team was really uh, helpful in um, identifying the right use cases and kind of craft out a solution. So they said like, yeah, we also found like your ability to analyze feedback and other uh, stuff using uh, natural language processing is exciting. But if you could tweak it to this particular part, uh, we are going to be able to save a lot of time and resources. I think that uh, should be a focus, if you may will. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we found out that was more effective. And uh, one other lesson I learned in this journey was, let your customer define your company and don't make assumptions as an entrepreneur. 
Like your company is not how you define it to be. Your company is how your customer perceives it to be. And that was the biggest lesson I took back. And then let, uh, I uh, allowed my customers to kind of essentially define. And that's how we were able to evolve as a business. That is a very interesting point where you, you know, when you, when you bring up the point that let your customer define what your product is, but that can also pull you in multiple different directions. So as an entrepreneur, as a founder, how do you make sure that you're still true to your vision and offering the right product to your end customer? Because I'm sure there are challenges, different banks or different institutions or different companies will have different demands and you cannot fulfill them all with Impossible. limited time and resources. So how do you go about <laughs> uh, managing that? Uh, Ron, you actually answered your question by giving away the keyword, like uh, being true to your vision, right? Mm. So what is uh, the, the, that's the test of consistency, right? Yeah. For us, uh, we have a certain set of KPIs on which we measure our solution. It's like yeah. how much time uh, we save for the first uh, iteration, which is probably the maker part of a process. And the second one is how much time we save in the checker part of the process, mm. right? So uh, effectively looking at it, um, anytime we're able to save that much of amount of time, and, and the last one being streamlining the workflow. Hmm. So if we are able to do these three things, so these are our three parameters to check for the, what we call as the test of consistency. If our solution is matching these three parameters, we think um, uh, uh, we're still true to our vision and let the customer then elaborate on that. But having said that, if a customer tells us to, uh, like, you know, integrate with the hardware so that they could find something more exciting, right. uh, naturally, uh, it is completely uh, a big deviation from what we are trying to establish or do. Mm. Uh, and you got to uh, clearly take a stand and say no to that. But within that particular boundary, which is true to your vision, if you're yeah. able to get uh, a customer to work with it, I think mm. that's, uh, so I want to rephrase perhaps, let your customer help you in the discovery process rather mm. than fully define. I mean, the, the right. ultimate uh, uh, decision maker uh, as, as a founder lies within you, right? So Yeah, no, think- exactly. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense because, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of founders and one of the biggest concerns is like, hey, our customer is asking us to do this, um, but we don't think we'll be able to do it. How do we say no without actually burning the bridge or not taking their investment and so forth? That's always a challenge, always a challenge, especially with a company that's trying to grow. Uh, you're right. I mean, uh, we, have, we have seen some instances of that sort where people thought like we could do something. Uh, in theory, we could. But um, I mean, you have to be a little more intelligent than just like you're uh, going out and doing everything that's thrown at you, right? Right. Um, so you need to, somewhere down the line, you need to be smart enough to figure out what is the ROI, right? How much time and effort you're putting in and what is going to get you. And another way to look at it is if I uh, put in the effort and I'm going to do this, will I be able to repeat it going outside, right? Mm. Is this a problem isolated for this particular customer? And it can, if I solve this isolated problem, uh, do I become an indispensable resource for this uh, particular customer? That's a great way of looking at it. Right. If that's the case, even if it's a one-time, go ahead and do it so that you cement your place. Or if you are saying like, okay, by making this uh, something, offering something new, if I can repeat it outside, go and do it. But if you fail to get answers, affirmative answers for both these steps, you probably don't want to do that. Got it. Got it. No, I think that's a fair advice. And you want to make sure you're, you're setting yourself up for success by validating some of the hypotheses that you have set out initially, and then going out of your comfort zone a little bit to see how much more you can actually uh, expand <laughs> while doing this. Right? <laughs> well, you articulated, yeah. articulated yeah. that really well. <laughs> right. So, you know, so that's, that's interesting. Now it brings me back to the point where you were talking about where you ran a POC with a French bank uh-huh. and and a POC is no guarantee that will it will turn into a business opportunity in the long run. And most of the startups are usually tied up running POCs with multiple different partners and hoping that this will turn into something big. So how do you know when an idea has actually struck gold and this has the potential to go out? And also how do you manage expectations with your clients that, hey, that we are just not 
for here for POC. We want to be able to partner with you. So it's a double pronged question. So feel free to answer in the way. Uh, <laughs> That's a great you question. And, and I, I think uh, a lot of startups uh, will resonate with that because, you know, every startup is, re- is working in the enterprise space. We'll be fairly tired of working with large corporations doing multiple POCs and it seldom makes into production. Right. I was reading a statistic somewhere. It said that only 16% of POCs make it, make it into production right. uh, for AI and automation space, especially, which is pretty bad because, which means like 84% failure rate. And that's a lot for a startup that doesn't have infinite resources at hand. Right. So um, when we ran uh, to uh, when we ran actually three POCs in a matter of uh, six months, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to our good luck, we had all the three use cases in production the same year. Oh, wow. uh, again, like timing and luck matters, but like there there are some strategies to compete against the luck, right? That that's so a unicorn what, in itself. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I would say that right. I mean, yeah. uh, we were very lucky. So uh, the, the first strategy to compete against uh, purely luck-driven luck or strategy-driven, I think the first advice I would like to give is identify like, who is going to be our end user and see what's the real impact. I mean, certain things look really cool, right? I mean, think of a drone uh, monitoring an ADM system. It looks and sounds promising, but like, would you go to an ADM room which has like a drone flying around right. I mean, probably not that will freak a lot of people out right For so sure. some ideas are just they sound really nice but they, they don't really yield any outcomes right or for example if you're talking about like 3d printing you, how many times are you going to print your own head right i mean there's only that many times you want right. your own head to be printed out so all these things right are really exciting but like they don't yield any outcomes so wow factor is necessary to grab the outcome. What gets your outcome is your ability to tackle the boring, repetitive nature of problems. And corporations are not really that exciting and they don't take a lot of risk. If you understand these two facts, uh, mm-hmm. you will be able to compete against luck because you know you're not going to be going ahead and uh, you know revolutionizing the corporations, right? You're going to make them better. You're not going to change them. And I guess right. that's one thing you've got to understand as an entrepreneur. That's one of the secrets of getting it into production. That's a thing. Right. And also some unknown factors, right? Which we don't, which we as entrepreneurs fail to account for. Now, these large organizations have hundreds of years of history, legacy systems, uh, their IT infrastructure requirements, and they are there for a reason, right? Yeah. They, you cannot circumvent them. So mm. your option is to work with a bunch of partners and go that extra mile to be flexible. Uh, if needed, uh, you may want to do uh, look at strategies to do an on-premise implementation. Uh, it might sound like a bad advice, but believe me, that's the way to go about doing it. If you think you will make the corporations do uh, walk the uh, line which you're comfortable with, Good luck getting things into production. Let me tell you that. <laughs> yep. No, that's always a challenge. You're talking with, you know, uh, different lines of uh, business units and the hierarchies that come with it, and their own organizational structure and the, uh, you know, the time that's already being consumed in other work and. Correct. More, more often than not, you have the same individuals trying to work with startups as well. So it just makes uh, uh, it's it's asking for too much to tell them this is what, <laughs> you, you, what you're you right. <laughs> I mean, as an entrepreneur, because you know, your entire life is driven by the startup, right? Mm-hmm. But you got to respect the fact that the other person uh, has a full-time job and they're actually sparing some extra time for you. I mean, uh, we've seen some of our customers have been gracious enough to meet us uh, informally for a coffee on a Saturday, on a Sunday, mm-hmm. right? And uh, spend time and giving us advice. They're like, you know, we know our organization, you want to get things done. These are the ways, these are the checklists. These will not be given to you, but like these are the checklists you want to take into account and then go ahead and have a discussion. And these are your people who are going to help you out. And even even this kind of small information, uh, I don't think uh, there's an incentive for people working in a large organizations to give it to you. But like uh, if they're gracious enough, you got to tap in the opportunity with both hands and capitalize on it. Yep. No, I, I totally agree. And that's, 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 
I think it's very lucky for you to be in a space where you have uh, people who have given you advice on like weekends and actually walking you through how the organization works. Sometimes you're just going in cold and expecting to change uh, the, the, the company and the outlook uh, inside out on day one or day zero. <laughs> That's often not the case. Um, True. So, you know, while you're on this journey um, and trying to partner up with large corporations, trying to solve some of the mundane issues that they're looking to solve themselves, what is it something that keeps you up at night uh, while you're thinking about just growing your business? Uh, it's it's uh, too many things that keep me up yeah. at night. Give me uh, like top two, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> One of the practical things is I work with customers from different time zones, right? From mm-hmm. uh, starting from Australia and ending all the way in California. So that's a, that definitely keeps me up with the night, regardless of right. where I'm located. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> but the, the, uh, in all seriousness, right? The thing that keeps me up at night is right. Uh, uh, we know the best way we got an entry into working with these large organizations was to be at least a couple of steps ahead, not like 10 steps ahead, which makes it impractical to work with you. So we're like a couple of steps ahead of the local innovation teams. So that was Scott's entry. And I'm sure like every organization is uh, getting up there, right? No one's like just taking it easy. So how do we keep ourselves a couple of steps ahead? and make our offerings valuable and very practical, right? Mm -hmm. You want to make it valuable and practical so that when someone wants to work with you, they are like convinced, okay, this is a person I want to work with because yeah, what he or she is offering is tangible and I can benefit from that. To to stay a couple of steps ahead, you need to read uh, the markets, you need to read how organizations are, and more crucially, like the entire sector, right? The entire sector is changing. A few assumptions with just sectors made, uh, especially our sector, they didn't prove to be very successful. And we saw some large companies which are heavily funded, mm-hmm. uh, didn't deliver on the necessary outcomes. And that was an early hint on what not to do. So and when you're saying our we- sector, you mean AI and automation? AI and automation. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yep. because no, I'm no, so no. used You're to You're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, AI and automation. Yeah. Right. So uh, uh, that kind of keeps me up uh, to mm. know, uh, to keep up with the sector, to stay a couple of steps ahead of uh, the customer requirements. Uh, the competition has never bothered me so much because I think the space is so big that uh, winner wouldn't take it all. There will be multiple people who will do very effective job. Yep. No, I think that the pace at which technology is improving the changes that we are seeing in this space, it's hard for a human to keep track of all of it. You'll probably need an AI to keep track of all the changes that are happening within your industry itself. So maybe something to think about. It's something to think about. You're right. Um, No, so... I mean, no journey, uh, let alone a startup journey, is all rosy and... uh, everything is good. There's obviously challenges, you know, and failures along the way. What are some of those big challenges and failures that have shaped you as an entrepreneur and your company, Stride.ai, on things that you do better than you were and you'd continue to improve on? Uh, So, yeah, this is a very interesting question. And uh, honestly, I have a a list of failures. Probably it's too long for me to cover it right now. I want to pick two of them. (laughs) I want to pick two of them. One I want to cite was from my grad school days. Mm -hmm. So this is the time when my professor had asked me to uh, kind of build a prototype for a software. And uh, we were supposed to present that work uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, So we had about like four weeks to build a prototype. And then, uh, you know, go ahead and present that work. So what I did is I, I took uh, the first four or five days to build a majority of work. And when he came uh, to see how the software was being developed, I was like, oh, it's all done. Uh, let me show you the demo. And I picked up a pretty complex use case and like ran it. And he was like, it's impressive. Let me see if I can do something. And he entered wrong input. And the software went into infinite loop and the entire system oh, wow. crashed. <laughs> crashed, yeah. So uh, it is insulting. And um, my assumption was who will enter wrong inputs. Hmm. So my professor was like, okay, if you really deserve a grad school degree, you need to know that 
error handling is first objective of any software. I mean, you cannot assume that your uh, user is going to be perfect. So you need to send appropriate warnings. I guess this is fairly irresponsible from someone like you who has the merit to build this. You couldn't be so irresponsible. It really got me thinking, and then I was able to work on the software for the next two days and ensure that the error handling was the first thing that I took care of, and the software performed as expected. Even on wrong inputs, it would send appropriate warnings. So that was the first learning that I have used several times. So when um, I particularly, like when I have this idea of uh, any software or any solution, I, I try to tell people that these are the potential places where we could go wrong. I wanna make sure in your test cases, you incorporate these ideas. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, like as a software developer uh, with, someone like a, with someone like me who is, has a software development background, uh, we don't particularly pay attention to the uh, test cases, right? In general, and then we end up coming out of the bad software. I guess that's one of the big learnings from my failure out there in that instance. The other one I would say is, so we oftentimes are taught, right? Like uh, build a minimum viable product, go consult with your customers. I think I'm going to borrow the one that you told about, like let your customer define yourself and all Uh that. So there was a particular instance where one of our customers thought it was a great idea to uh, go ahead and build a dashboard where all the ticketing systems would be integrated and they could run the analysis and uh, they could also tap into what uh, we call the social call centers, right? So we said, oh, you know what? This is an amazing product idea and the customer has told, which means there's obviously, they're very interested. So we took the chance, spent a lot of money, uh, got it designed, implemented in a matter of two months. And then we went ahead and uh, showed the demo to the customer and the customer was like, yeah, that's just an idea. I don't care. And <laughs> it is really brutal on us, right? So we right. spent two months. We spent at least four developers. When we were an eight-member company, imagine four developers working two months on this, going out there. And this is not even lukewarm interest. This is like, okay, whatever. I don't care. Yeah. yeah. I think that was something which I realized. Unless things, uh, you have a formal agreement and you're going in that direction, mm-hmm. you don't want to go ahead and over-invest and take big risks because uh, this is exactly what it is. This is a foolish risk. It doesn't, right. you never know it's going to pay off. We never tested the hypothesis like, is it going to be useful for our other customers? Is it useful for this particular customer? Who is the end user? I mean, mm-hmm. we didn't put the framework that we have to decide whether a product should be pursued or not pursued. Right. We then realized it's essential for us to put a test for kind of validation. If you don't have the test for validation, we don't do that anymore. I mean, if the answer is no, we're not going to build it. So that's oh. my second biggest learning from the failure. After I think that's, a lot that, of time and money. <laughs> I think that's a big one because you see a lot of times where, you know, um, individuals have an, a mentality that you build the product and the customers will come. That's kind of been the saga uh, you hear pretty much every day if you're following TechCrunch or you know companies getting bust that a lot of time the reason is they weren't building for their consumer or customer base right they had a lot of money they have a lot of resources to burn and it just goes to a complete waste so that's definite learning (laughs) yes learned it the hard way huh Right. No, absolutely. Um, you know, you've touched briefly around the points on things that keep you up at night and things uh, about your failures. That obviously takes a toll as an individual, as an entrepreneur on your mental health and the stress level and so forth. How do you tend to cope with it? Because that's, this is kind of a, an epidemic in itself where founders most many a times found themselves alone in this journey. No one to talk to, no one to understand the pain and the, <laughs> the, the, the challenge that they're going through the glass that you're they're eating on a daily basis how, how do you manage all of that so uh, let me kind of like uh tell this to aspiring entrepreneurs yeah. so when you look at uh, uh, entrepreneurs right what's the thing that strikes your mind uh richard branson parting on an island that's <laughs> that's far from reality i think yeah you got to be uh, uh, richard branson with that wealth and that age you could party on an island right. <clears throat> not when you're in your late 20s, early 30s, no, that's definitely not happening. 
So entrepreneurship uh, is not partying on a lonely island, <clears throat> but a journey of full of loneliness, right? Mm. You're surrounded by people uh, with whom you have to put a happy face. You have to convince them. You have to persuade people, right? I mean, you can't put a sad face and expect people to empathize with you. You, you get no right. brownie point for having uh, a brutal, honest approach there. The fact is you have to be smiley, you have to be convincing, you have to constantly persuade people. So it takes a lot of toll. And the worst part is no one gets it, right? People think, so what? It's so amazing. You're, a, you're your own boss. That's the, far, that's the furthest from reality, I can tell you. In fact, I would love to be back in the corporation if I wanted to be a boss, right? That's much easier. You're, you're nobody's boss. No one listens to you. You're persuading people, whether it's customers, investors, your peers, constant persuasion of people. And my view is, right, yeah. the sooner you realize this, the faster, better it is. The way I have uh, found, uh, I found a few good ways to cope up with it. One, create uh, or surround yourself with other entrepreneurs who are in the similar situation. Nobody better than them can empathize with you, right? Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate to be part of Techstars Network, uh, a Startup Chile Network, or mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Numa, which is a French acceleration network, and, and a bunch of other uh, entrepreneurs I got in touch with through various networks and various customer projects that we work together on. So I make it a point to take advice from entrepreneurs, experienced or not that experienced, just to use them as an idea board to bounce my ideas off and even talk very honestly, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you hear a particular company raised $20 million. So you are right. like, okay, it's all rainbows and unicorns going forward. Right. <laughs> and that's again, not the case, right? So when you tell that, you know what, we're struggling to raise $5 million, you guys raised 20 million, it must be so cool. They're like, lucky you, you're not, going through this pain, right? And then you discuss. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this kind of organic and uh, transparent discussions really help you uh, unwind and they give you a, a taste of reality, what is to come in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So that you don't uh, prepare for a flowery image, you know how things are in reality. Yeah. I guess uh, surrounding yourself with a peer group that understands you is the greatest thing I have done. And uh, uh, a lot of my uh, entrepreneur friends have been of great help. The second thing is um, your family tends to empathize with you and whatever you do, they kind of are proud of you. So right. uh, if you're really down and want some reassurance, just talk to your family that makes them feel, uh, <laughs> that makes you feel good. Because somehow right. this like the, the positive reinforcement know. works, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah. and uh, uh, also try to maintain a habit of writing things down, like mm. where things went wrong. And let me tell you one thing, neither mm -hmm. the good times or the bad times will last for a long time. In right. the startup world, like you face ups and downs almost on a daily basis, right? <laughs> right. So don't, don't be too excited if things are going great or don't be too upset if things are going bad. Because the right. situation flips on a daily basis. That, that's what the beauty of startups are. I, I love this practical advice. I think I haven't had, heard anyone being that honest and candid about how the life actually is. So really, <laughs> really appreciate it. <laughs> um, um, you know, because oftentimes I talk to individuals and they or founders who try to have these network or they have two or three things going, but something else is missing. Either they're too um, optimistic about a certain opportunity that came through and then too uh, pessimistic when something doesn't go through. So it's, I think this is a very practical advice. Just take it one day at a time and connect with your family and surround yourself with people who boost your, uh, you know, um, energy levels. <laughs> it, it is necessary that way, right? You've got to have that positive reinforcement of some sort because yeah. If you don't, it, it's just not going to work easily. I can tell you that. No, absolutely. Um, so now we are obviously living in an interesting times, right? Everyone's stuck at home. Um, you know, the social um, collectivity or the social enthusiasm that used to exist has kind of died down and everything's on virtual Zoom like we are doing right now. How do you think <laughs> that has impacted you as founder or your business? And what are some of the changes that you see uh, happening around you as well? Okay, so this is almost, uh, we're in this uh, online virtual mode for the fifth month, I suppose. Yeah. Um, the initial couple of months were really weird because people didn't know how to respond to, like, there was a lot of chaos, right? I mean, missing timings of the meetings and 
uh, people are just not accustomed to this uh, new way of working. Uh, I think now it's not unfair to say that people are used to it. Uh, yeah, we oftentimes in our organization, people tell that they would love to go back to office and work just as a change. But uh, people are also open to working from home. So hmm. it's kind of balances itself out. Um, the challenges I found were these. Like first is in between April to now, there have been about seven new people that we have hired. I've never met them in person. I've hmm. never met them in person. So what happens is like, uh, unfortunately, uh, one of uh, our new team member was like, I'm so glad to see you on a video call because now I can put a face to your name. <laughs> and, and, and you know, like that is like, these are some of the things you believe are like, what? Because this right. is like, we're still making assumption that, yeah, you know the person. So I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like you never tried to Google me. And uh, this person was like, oh, I did look up uh, you on both YouTube as well as Google. And right. I know who you are, but like, I did not know like how you talk in person. Like, I was right. like okay, I'm sorry. I should have done that. So yeah. we, we came out uh, with a unique concept called social coffee. So every Friday evening at 530, uh, we do uh, a 45 minute social coffee. Where the whole idea is uh, everybody picks up any topic of their choice. We have restricted to like travel, work, technology, and, uh, you know, uh, kind of like uh, relaxing your mind. So right. you can pick and speak for about two minutes and everybody kind of follows up with the discussion. So that's actually a pretty interesting way to kind of bond yeah. and learn about people beyond their work, right? I mean, right. you don't want to uh, address people as, oh, the testing team or the DevOps team, but actually give the people their real identity and talk and know them more as individuals rather than the job functions. I think right. that's been a challenge and that's the way we have tried to overcome it. No, I think that that's really important to be engaged with your uh, you know, employees and your customers uh, the best you can and the best you know uh, and 100%. just continue to evolve from there. Uh, no, that, I think that's, that's very valuable advice to anyone listening on to this. And I know we are running short on time, um, but I have one more question, actually two more questions before we wrap up today's sessions. Um, the first question is now we have touched all the way from your journey from India to your grad school and starting a venture. And now you're back in India. You're in Bangalore right now, right? I'm in Bangalore right now. Right. Um, so looking back at how things have transpired, how things have evolved, what is it that you would go back and change? And it's okay oh. if you won't. <laughs> I, I would change a lot of things, right? I mean, if I said I don't want to change anything, that I should have been like a multi-billionaire by now, right? <laughs> no, that's not the case. And it's not just about like money or success, but right. I would do a lot more things differently if I were to, if I was given a chance to go back in time and fix things. So the first thing, I mean, like one thing I would continue to do what I did was like go attend a bunch of acceleration programs. Uh, these places are great. They are like a, a, a compressed MBA. They give you multiple things at sim simultaneously and you're mm -hmm. learning from your peers, you build a network. So that's great. I would still do that. But thing I would do differently is I would work with people that I trust uh, more on the ethical basis rather than people purely on the skill basis. Okay. So any entrepreneur who is trying to build a team uh, pay more attention to ethics and their work culture as opposed to their skill sets. I think you can uh, improve people's skill sets. It's just a ma function of time and effort. Right. But like ethics or the work style, uh, that you cannot teach. And, and you know what? Um, you will be left high and dry if you uh, just hire people on the skill sets. I think that's the number one change I would do. The second change I would do is... Um, I would kind of like be a little more organized as startups. What we do is we tend to do everything, right? And that's right. something we pride ourselves on. Uh, you could be a great janitor as well as CEO simultaneously, <laughs> which is what is expected and it's okay. But there comes a time when you clearly got to say, no, this is not what I'm doing. I think I was involved in the development part of things for a far too long time. And I should have backtracked a little bit earlier and right. thought through the, uh, the idea from uh, a design perspective. I always thought like I had poor design skills and I'm never going to be able to do it. I thought if that's the case, I should have learned it and then kind of transitioned into a bigger vision role faster 
than yeah. I did. It took me about three years to do that, but I would have probably done it in the first year itself. So I think um, uh, one, do not work, uh, do not hire people for the skills, hire people for their ethics, their loyalty, their work culture. Um, second, uh, know that uh, you need to sit, start saying no earlier on itself rather than kind of like uh, waiting till it gets up here. So uh, if you are not able to do it on time, you're going to waste a bunch of time. And I think those are the two things I would do very differently now. I, I think how the conversation has been so organic all this while and the candid and honest answer that you've been providing. I feel like you have already mastered these, uh, these questions way too many times in the past, but I, I, I love everything that's coming out and I, I tend to think along similar lines. So it's good to think that I'm not the only one in this space who's thinking about awesome. uh, startups awesome. and <laughs> founders and such. Way. That's um, terrific, bro. So, and I promised I had two questions. My last question here now is, so anyone who's listening to this podcast, where can they find you how can they reach out to you okay you can find me on linkedin and twitter for sure i tweet a lot i'm very active on linkedin uh you can google my name uh vijay nadador or vijay khan nadador whatever you go uh, whatever you can find me by and and uh if you really want to get in touch with me also i'll be happy to share my email which would be uh, vrn at stride.ai uh, you can drop in a note i promise i reply to 100 percent of my emails and I will try to uh, write back as early as I can. That's brilliant. I'll have all that information in my notes as well. But as I said, it's been a pleasure, refreshing conversation to have such candid opinions and answers to some of those questions. So really appreciate your time and thank you again uh, for speaking with Manjabi. Uh, thank you so much, Rohan, <laughs> for inviting me. It was an honor to be interviewed or have a conversation with you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. That is all on our today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your amazing network and also check out our newsletter, mindgravity2020.substack.com, available exclusively via Substack. If you aren't already on the email list, add yourself to it because there's a lot more coming, a lot of interesting subjects to cover. But for this podcast and until next time, namaste. Namaste.